chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites assembled, and they were fasting and wearing sackcloth, and their heads were covered with dust. And those truly the Israelite descendants separated from all the foreigners, standing and confessing their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. For one-fourth of the day, they stood in place to read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God. One-fourth of the day confessing their sins and worshiping Yahweh their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Benoah, and Kadami, and Sheshemai, Benoah, um, da, 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 stood on the steps and called out loudly to Yahweh their God. The Levites, Jeshua, and all these guys, stand up and bless Yahweh your God. And may you be blessed, O Yahweh our God, from age to age. May your glorious name be blessed. May it be lifted up above all blessings and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, along with all their multitude of stars, and the earth and all that is in it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you impart life to them, and all the multitudes of the heaven worship you. You are Yahweh God, who chose Abraham and brought Abram and brought him forth from Ur, the Chaldeans. You changed his name to Abraham, and when you perceived that his heart was faithful toward you, you established a covenant with him to give his descendants in the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of your ancestors in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and you performed awesome signs against Pharaoh, against his servants. And against the people of this land, for you knew that the Egyptians had acted presumptuously against them, and you made yourself a name that is celebrated to this day. You split the sea before them, and they crossed through the sea on dry ground, but you threw their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the surging waters, and you guided them up with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illumine them the path that they were to travel. Now notice how many of these festivals they go through the history again. They go through the history of Israel. They talk about when they were first called by God, and they always talk about the Exodus, which was their act of salvation. Because this is the whole book of Deuteronomy, too. The key idea of the book of Deuteronomy is remember, remember, remember. The remembrance of what God has done in history, in the lives of the people around you, and in your own life is the key to a successful Christian life. We easily forget the things that God does. And the more that we can retell the history of God or his acts in our lives, the more likely we are to trust him in the future. When you forget what he has done in your life or in the lives of others, then you're less likely to act and trust in the future or the present. The more you're reciting that over and over again, the more likely you're to act upon that in the present. Verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you provided them with just judgments, true laws, and good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath. You issued commandments and statutes and laws to them through Moses your servant, and you provided bread from heaven for them in their time of hunger, and you brought forth water from the rock for them in their time of thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land, and you had sworn to give them. But they, our ancestors, behaved presumptuously, and they rebelled and did not obey their commandments. They refused to obey and did not recall their, your miracles that you would perform among them. Instead, they rebelled and appointed a leader to return to their bondage in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and faithful in your loyal love. And you did not abandon them. Even when they made a cast image of a calf, for themselves, you said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt, or when they committed atrocities and blasphemies. 
this phrase, but you are the God of forgiveness, merciful and compassionate and slow to get angry and unfailing your loyal love. This is repeated of Yahweh describing Yahweh more than any other phrase in the First Testament. And when God came to Moses and forgave Israel the golden calf and then revealed his glory to Moses, this is what he said when he passed by Moses with all of his glory. And this is the idea that of all the things that makes God truly unique is not just his sovereignty, but coupled with the fact that he is a compassionate, merciful, forgiving God. There is no other being in the universe that is both of those things. Verse 19. Do your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert, and the pillar of cloud did not stop guiding them in the path by day, nor did the pillar of fire stop illuminating for them by night in the path on which they should travel. You imparted your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You provided water for their thirst, and for forty years you sustained them. Even in the desert they never lacked anything. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples, and you allocated to them every corner of the land. And they inherited the land of King Shihon and Heshbon, and the land of King Og and Bashan. That's the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You multiply their descendants like the stars of the sky, and you brought them to the land that you had that told you that you told their ancestors to enter in order to possess. And their descendants entered to possess the land, and you subdued before them the Canaanites who were the inhabitants of the land. And you delivered them into their hand, together with their kings and the peoples and the land, to deal with them as they pleased. And they captured fortified cities and fertile land. And they took possession of the houses full of all sorts of good things, wells previously dug, vineyards, olive trees, and fruit trees in the abundance. And they ate until they were full and grew fat, and they enjoyed the full of your great goodness. Nonetheless, they grew disobedient and rebelled against you. And they discarded, disregarded your law. And they killed your prophets who had solemnly admonished them in order to cause them to return to you. They committed atrocities and blasphemies. And therefore you delivered them into the hand of their adversaries who oppressed them. But in the time of their distress, they called to you. And you heard from heaven and your abundant compassion. You provided them with deliverance deliverers to rescue them from their adversaries then when they were at rest again and they went back to doing evil before you then you abandoned them to their enemies and they gained dominion over them he's probably talking about the book of judges and when they again cried out to you in your compassion you heard from heaven and rescued them time and again and you solemnly admonished them in order to return to them in your law but they behaved presumptuously, and they did not obey your commandments. And they sinned against your ordinances, those by which an individual, if he obeys them, will live. They boldly turned from you, and they rebelled and did not obey. And you prolonged your kindness with them for many years. And you solemnly admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Still, they paid no attention. So you delivered them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. And however, due to your abundant mercy, you did not do away with their altogether. You did not abandon them, for you are a merciful and compassionate God. So now, not only is it important to repeat and tell of God's great acts, but it's also important to repeat their sins. Because the more we remember how much they sinned and how much we sinned and fell away from God, then that much more awesome is his act of faithfulness, how it stands out to us. 
it becomes a lot harder to accuse God of not caring about us and our suffering or being unjust with our sins when you remember your falling away and his faithfulness just as equally together. So now our God, the great, powerful, and awesome God who keeps covenant fidelity, do not regard as inconsequential all the hardship that has been fallen us, our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets, our ancestors, and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this very day. You are righteous with regard to all that has happened to us, for you have acted faithfully. It is he, we who have been in the wrong, and our kings and our leaders and our priests and our ancestors have not kept your law. They have not paid attention to your commandments or the testimonies of which you have solemnly abandoned them. And even when they were in their kingdom and benefiting from your incredible goodness and have lavished on them and the spacious and fertile land you had set before them, they did not serve you, nor did they turn from their evil practices. So today we are slaves in the very land that you gave to our ancestors to eat its fruit and to enjoy its good things. We are slaves. Its abundant produce goes to the kings you have placed over us due to our sins, and they rule over our bodies and our livestock as they see fit, and we are in great distress. Now, when they say we're slaves, they don't literally mean that we're slaves. What they mean is that they're not the masters of their own land, completely independent, free to serve God without restrictions from the Persian Empire. They're obedient to the Persian officials and under the rule of the Persian emperor. And so in this way, exile hasn't completely ended. And they're acknowledging that exile is not completely, literally over with. And so they're crying out to God to remember them. Verse 38. Because of all this, we are entering into a binding covenant in written form. Our leaders, our Levites, our priests have affixed their names on this sealed document. So they basically say, we will renew the Mosaic Covenant. And we will commit ourselves to you, God, so that we can receive your blessings, be in a relationship with you, and be your covenant people again. And then they list all the names of all the people who agree to do this. Most likely these names are just the clan leaders who would then represent all the members of the clan as well. Verse 28, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the temple attendants, and all those who have separated themselves from the neighboring peoples, because of the law of God, along with their wives and their sons and daughters, of all who were able to understand, hereby participate with their colleagues and the town leaders, and enter into a curse and oath to adhere to the law of God, which has given through Moses the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commandments of Yahweh our God, along with the ordinances and the statutes. They say, we acknowledge that we're putting ourselves under the curse of the Deuteronomic law as well. Chapters 28 and 29 list out curses for disobedience, so they're putting themselves under that. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the neighboring people, and we will not take our daughters in marriage for our sons, and we will not buy on the Sabbath or on holy day from the neighboring peoples who bring their wares and all kinds of grain to sell on the Sabbath day. And we will let the fields lie fallow every seventh year, and we will cancel every loan. 
and we accept responsibility fulfilling the commands to give one-third of our shekels each year for the work of the temple of our God, for the loaves presentation, and for the regular grain offering, and for the regular burnt offering, and for the Sabbaths, and for the new moons, and for the appointed meetings, and for the holy offerings, and the sin offerings, and to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the temple of our God. They list a random amount of laws. None of these laws are connected to each other when you actually read through the laws. They're separated by multiple chapters. They don't seem to have any connection with each other in any way, and so many laws are left out. And that was not uncommon. We see this in several places throughout the Bible, where even Paul does this, where he just lists a couple commandments. And all these scholars are like, why did he leave these out? Does that mean we're not under those laws anymore? Like Paul's only saying we only have to do these Ten Commandments. If you go throughout the Bible, you'll see this multiple places. When they make covenants or they refer to the law, they'll just kind of mention a few here and there and there. And it's their way of saying we're going to be obedient to all the law. And so they're just giving a few examples. And so this is the idea of mentioning the few or the parts to refer to the whole. And so this would be kind of like saying, like, well, that's nothing but nuts and bolts over there. Well, no, there's way more to that projector than nuts and bolts. There's plastic and wires and that kind of stuff. By mentioning the parts, though, I referred to the whole. And so this is not an uncommon way of thinking, is rather than go through all the laws, because they've already read through all those. But now then when they're swearing allegiance, they're saying, by mentioning these five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten laws here, we're consciously saying we're adhering to all the laws. Verse 34, we priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots concerning the wood offerings to bring them to the temple of our God according to our families and the designated times year by year to burn on the altar of Yahweh our God. And it is written in the law, we also accept responsibility for bringing the first fruits of our land and the first fruits of every fruit tree year by year to the temple of Yahweh. We also accept responsibility as written in the law for bringing firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and all of our flocks to the temple of our God and to the priests who are ministering in the temple of God. We also bring our first of our coarse meal and our contributions of the fruit of every tree of new wine and olive oil and priests and storerooms of the temple of our God along with the tenth of the produce of our land and the Levites. And for the Levites are the one who collect the tithes and all the cities where we work. A priest of Aaron's line will be with the Levites when the Levites collect the tithe, and the Levites will bring up a tenth of the tithes to the temple of our God and the storerooms and the treasury, and the Israelites and the Levites will bring the contribution of the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and the storerooms where the utensils and sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister stay along with the gatekeepers and the singers, and we will not neglect the temple of our God. They say, we swear that we will bring our first fruits offering, the first crops that we get every year to the temple of God. We'll bring our grain thanksgiving offerings and our animal sacrifice for atonements and our tithe. And so they list all the major categories of the yearly tithe. And so they're committing to be faithful and tithe to God as well. There's a power to this. To do this every year or every where you just list through just verbally speak out loud and make a covenant to God that I will do this. I, I, will, I will swear my allegiance to reading your word and being in prayer, and I, I will pay the tithe. And to list your own covenant vows with God from his law 
and that Christ has emphasized that we're still responsible for these parts, there would be a power to consciously and verbally reciting that every year and saying, I'm committed to this. I'm committed to this. Chapter 11, verse 1. So the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem while the rest of the people cast lots to bring one of every ten to settle in Jerusalem. So they decide they're going to bring a certain percentage. Well, one out of every ten is basically a tithe. It's the tithe. So they're going to tithe people into this city. The holy city, nine remain in other cities. The people gave their blessings and all the men who were volunteered to settle in Jerusalem. And these are providential leaders who settle in Jerusalem, while the other Israelites and the priests and Levites and the temple attendants and the sons of the servants and Solomon settled in the cities of Judah, each with its own property in their cities. And some of the descendants of the Judah and some of the descendants of Benjamin settled in Jerusalem. So then it lists all the people of these different families. They're very intentional about this. They're very intentional about who they pick to go in Jerusalem, and they're very intentional about how they scatter people throughout the cities around Jerusalem, too. They're being very conscious and very intentional about repopulating Judah and Jerusalem to get the people of God going again in this city. Many scholars guess that the population of Jerusalem at this time would have been ended up being anywhere between 4,000 to 8,000 people. And remember, that's a lot of people for the ancient world to live in a city. That seems very small for us. They also distinguish between Judah and Benjamin because even though, so remember when, when God split the kingdom in the northern part and the southern part after Solomon's death, he basically said, I'm going to give 10 of the tribes to Jeroboam and I'm going to allow Solomon's son, Rehoboam, to keep one tribe, the tribe of Judah, because that's his tribe that he came from. And because God was honoring his promise to David that he would keep him king on the throne forever. Benjamin chose to stay with Judah. And so Benjamin remained loyal, which was huge because, remember, Saul was from Benjamin and David was from Judah. And there was this huge rival, like a rival to the point that they were trying to kill each other. And yet they chose to remain with them, which means the the tension of wanting to kill each other and the political opposition that they had against each other had healed by that time, and they were willing to be together. So if God can do that with Benjamin and Judah, who had different kings and they're trying to kill each other, he can do that with the Republicans and the Democrats. So now whether they'll allow it or not, I don't know. It's emphasizing Judah and Benjamin and so Judah is going to get all the cities south of Jerusalem, and Benjamin is going to get the cities north of Jerusalem. Now, you're like, well, that doesn't seem kind of fair because there's not much land south or north of Jerusalem before you hit Samaria, and we're now dealing with other people. But it's based on population. There were always, there were always more Judeites than any other tribe, even from the very point that God brought them out of Egypt. Also... That's the land that God assigned them. So way back in the days of Moses, that was the land that God assigned them. So they're not jipping Judah in any kind of a way. They're, or sorry, Benjamin in any kind of way. They're giving Benjamin the land that God gave Benjamin and nothing more, nothing less. So then it lists all these people and where they ended up. And that's the remainder of chapter 11. Chapter 12 
These are the priests, the Levites, who return with Zerubbabel. So then it begins to list the priests in these verses of chapter verses one through twenty-five. This list also is a continues the list of First Chronicles six three through fifteen. So Chronicles lists all these Levites that were from that time period, and then this list kind of picks up from that and continues it on of the post Babylonian exile. The priests are mentioned because by now we already know the priests were absolutely essential to the spiritual life of the people. And just as Joshua, as just as God commanded during the days of Moses and Joshua, the Levites were not allowed to have a tribal land. Well, they lost the tribal land when their father Levi murdered all the Shechemites during the time of Jacob. And they were cursed and not allowed to have a tribal allotment in any kind of a way. But they redeemed themselves when they stood next to Moses and refused to worship the golden calf after the exodus. So God made them priests. So because they weren't allowed to have their own tribal land because of the curse, but because they redeemed themselves and became priests by standing by God, then God decided to give them cities. And he scattered those cities throughout the tribes so that they could be strategically placed in each tribe to be leading each tribe in God and worship and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what's going on here. They're being rescattered according to what God had laid out. In chapter 12, verse 27, the narrative returns to the time after the wall was finished. This revival was going on at the same time that Nehemiah was starting to build the wall. As the wall began to be built, this, they probably, Nehemiah comes back and he's hooked up with Ezra. Ezra's already been leading them and teaching them for a long time. Nehemiah's come back and they're now building the wall. And a lot of emotions would have been raised. They've been under the tutelage of Ezra for a long time. The wall's going up. The excitement is going up. And they feel led into this conviction, this celebrating the festivals, renewing the covenant which now that explains the momentum they had despite all the opposition through the building of the wall. Because in all that time that we read through, the building of the wall and them trying to lure him into the temple to kill him, trying to spread bad rumors about him, the people not believing it, it was all took place within months after this huge revival and this covenant renewal. And that covenant renewal that we just went through became key to their success of the building of the wall that we just came out of as well. And so that's the time frame. So now we return back to post-wall being finished. And we come to this. Now they're going to dedicate the wall in a ribbon cutting, so to speak. Verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all the places they lived to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication joyfully with songs of thanksgiving and songs accompanied by cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were also assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the settlements of the Netathes and from Beth Gilgah and from the fields of Geba and Azimuth and for the singers who had built the settlements for themselves around Jerusalem and from the priests and Levites who purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. I brought the leaders of Judah up on top of the wall, and I appointed two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall southward toward the dung gate, and going after them were the Hoi, half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, and Ezra, and Meshulam, and Judah, Benjamin, and Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and some of the priests, and the trumpeters. And he lists all these names. 
Verse 38, the second choir was proceeding in the opposite direction, and I followed them along with half the people on top of the wall and past the tower, the ovens and the broad wall, and over the Ephraim gate and the Janiah gate and the fish gate and the tower gate of Hannah and the tower of the hundred sheep gate, and they stopped at the gate of the guard. He takes two large choirs, and they start in the southern part of the city wall. Remember, they started building at this northern part of the city wall. But the temple is at the northern part. So they start in the southern part, and he sends one choir going this way with Ezra, and he sends another choir going the other direction around the wall with himself, and they're singing and praising God as they're walking the wall. And they're, they're, every part of the wall that they had built... They're now walking that part of the wall, dedicating it to God and praising God in the process so that they would finish at the temple, at the northern part, and then be able to look at the temple and continue to praise God. Verse 40, And the two choirs that gave thanks took their stations in the temple of God, and I did also, along with the half of the officials with me and the priests. And they list the priests. Verse 43, And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God, had given them great joy, and the women and the children also rejoiced, and the rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. That would be powerful. Just all the whole entire nation standing in this wall and praising God. Verse 44, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms and over the contributions, firstfruits and the tithes, to gather them from the fields of the cities and the portions prescribed by the law. For the priests and the Levites, for the people of Judah, took delight in the priests and the Levites and were ministering, and they performed the service of their God and the services of purification along with the singers and the gatekeepers according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asphah, and they have been directors of the singers and for the songs of the praise and the thanks of God. So in those days as Zerubbabel in the days of Nehemiah and all of Israel was con- contrib- contributing the portions of the singers and the gatekeepers according to the daily need. And they set aside the portion for the Levites and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. So they're obeying the tithe exa- and the offering is exactly how God commanded it. The final consummation of Nehemiah's work had been reached. The sea was protected by a wall and could resist any attempt of the neighboring nations to attack. This was one of the main reasons for the joy, and the other was that the people had demonstrated that they could perform a major task as a unit, and this proved to be a great stimulus to the morale. So F. Charles Freshman said that. This is a model or a template of how our churches today could do a celebration. Not that you legalistically follow it and do it this exact way. Not that the Holy Spirit can't lead us to tweak it in a new modern kind of a way. But I've never been of a hard church that's ever done anything like this. And I'm not knocking any churches, but I mean, I've been at churches where they've dedicated a new part of the building and they just kind of cut the ribbon and clap each other and celebrate each other and that's about it. Um, and even our festivals, I mean, we do a little bit of this on Easter or Christmas Eve celebrations, that kind of stuff. But the, the intentionality, the, the celebrations, the, the, the reciting of the law, all this kind of stuff, the, the dedicating, the, the whole community dedicating, we're usually really good at the teaching and the singing part. But that ritualistic symbology of 
exciting obedience and commitment and covenant confessions. And that that's something that we're right. And I think we shy away from it because that's what the Catholics did and you know where it got them. But the problem was that when they did that, they didn't do teaching along with it. God is the God who committed ritual. But he committed ritual in the context of heart obedience and teaching of the law. And that's what we've kind of failed to do. We usually do one or the other or the other. But how to bring all this together is incredibly crucial for the life of the church.